games tell you exactly what the scale of value is. They tell you exactly how to accomplish it. You can assume that everyone else is using the same scale of value, and you know exactly how to measure it because there are explicit mechanical rules, which is incredibly pleasurable in temporary moments, right? But my worry is, and the general worry I have about gamification is, to get that pleasure in the real world, gamified education, gamified work, gamified communication, which is, I think, what Twitter is, you have to offer people a hyper-simplified, mechanically measurable, hyper-explicit value system, and they get the pleasures, game-like pleasures of value clarity in exchange for abandoning the subtlety, plurality, and self-determination of particular values. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to episode 175 of the podcast that explores our place in time, which on an episodic basis means kind of whatever I want it to. But one of the main attractors for conversations in this show is about how we're living through an information architecture and processing crisis right now as a species and by extension as a biosphere that doesn't know how to properly respond to the explosive novelty production of human society. This problem in human terms can be filed under crises in social epistemology, trying to understand how it is that we know what we know, how we come to that understanding collectively. And as a recent grantee of ideamarket.io, whose reputation market built on the blockchain attempts to provide a better way of determining which voices are worth listening to than the fiat assignment of platform by major media corporations. I was recently on the Idea Market podcast to discuss my thoughts on this, running all the way back to at least my conversation in Future Fossils episode 39 with Hunter Motts as well as my own speculative fiction, an oral history of the end of reality about deep fakes and challenges to the consensus. Ultimately, I do think that we will find better ways to share in the sacrament of rigorous thinking with one another as this century progresses. But there are some deep, fundamental constraints on how much we can actually improve and i am here in large part to encourage your humility in the face of what can and cannot actually be known so imagine my delight when as a storyteller at the diverse intelligences summer institute that's disi.org I became acquainted with the work and mind of C.T. Nguyen, a philosophy professor at the University of Utah, whose work focuses on how it is that we decide to measure value, the problems inherent in measuring certain forms of value and not others, philosophical challenges to how we determine and assign expertise, risks inherent in the gamification of society, 
which is very, very intimately related to all of the economics conversations we've had on this show and my other podcast, Complexity for the Santa Fe Institute, and also the costs and downsides of transparency. So, I mean, really, this guy's work is just a bouquet of about half a dozen of my favorite mysteries to explore. And I immediately identified him as someone I would love to help unpack these ideas for me and for you on future fossils. So this is the first in a series of conversations with the amazing people I met at DC this summer. They have their own really cool podcast I recommend you check out called Many Minds, hosted by Kenzie Cooperwriter. Go check them out and expect a trickle of these conversations over the year to come. Before we dive into this week's episode, I just want to thank everybody listening to this show for the support that you have offered in all of the myriad forms that you have offered it. Be that rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, be it spreading the word to friends, contributing to the fascinating conversations that we have in the Future Fossils Discord server, and of course, supporting this work, me, and by extension, my family, on patreon.com slash Garfield. Special thanks to the new patrons over the last couple of weeks, Lydia Shearer, Helen Leaf Black, Casey Henderson, and Aaron Kuana, joining about 200 other people, helping me carve out scarce and precious time in my schedule to keep future fossils coming. I would love to do so much more with this show, and right now the only thing stopping me is a desk job, from which I would love your help partially escaping. One thing I'd really love to do with everything I've learned and synthesized is to start offering myself up in consultancy and advisory roles. So if you know anybody that would be interested in that kind of thing, please connect us. And of course, if you'd like to participate in the three book club calls that we will be having before the end of this year, starting on October 23rd with Christopher Ryan's Civilized to Death, then please hop on over to Patreon, become a supporter at any level, and you will not only be availing yourself to all kinds of exclusive goods, but helping me restructure my life to be more available to you and to my family and to these vital conversations. And with that, thanks again for tuning in. Here's my conversation with philosopher C.T. Nguyen about games, value, transparency, and some of the deepest and most persistent and vexing puzzles in our quest to know what is true and how we come to that truth. As we begin, T is just wrapping up, grading some papers. Thanks and enjoy. There we go. There, yeah. No, you don't want to podcast in grading mode. That actually kind of like directly links into some of this this stuff but yeah it it is sort of like the uh this might be apocryphal i don't recall but the commentary about the severity of court determinations and like whether they happen before or after the judges had lunch right yes yeah i was just thinking there's this thing i started realizing happening and i realized it was because i used to have a commute between childcare and work and now it's like childcare 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 
one minute to run downstairs and hop on a Zoom call, and like my mental state is just like completely <laughs> wrong. I had to start building in like, no, you're going to go down 10 minutes. I know you could get cranked more out of your life, but you're going to go downstairs in 10 minutes and just kind of like, chill out. <laughs> or you will give a terrible talk because <laughs> you can't go instantly from taking care of a four-year-old to talking philosophy. It's funny. I was just on this call this morning tweeting for SFI about this new school PDOS, the new school policy and design for outer space. They're working with Interplanetary Festival on a series of kind of speculative microfiction discussions about this lunar base of the 22nd century. And everybody was sitting there in this call, you know, talking about what a welcoming party is going to look like for new lunar denizens. Are you going to have to teach people to walk on the moon? Is It's going to be a big deal. And I was sitting here thinking like, I don't know, linear extrapolations are never great. But at the same time, like, it seems completely logical to me that somebody on a trip to the moon is going to be, for one, like graded through a series of microgravity adjustments so that, you know, so they're, they're, they're not going to notice there's this big difference. And, and then second of all, they've probably spent linear weeks or months of their life in like moon VR. So it's not even going to seem all that different to them on some level, you know, and it's just like all of these ways that we think about the ritualization of passage of travel through space and time yeah. have been basically destroyed by digital media. Right. <laughs> right. So... And we need new rituals, but we can't just like steal old rituals. We need to make things that actually function in the new environment. It's really hard to evolve because I think what the practice says it's about is not always what it's about. That's the general that's the general theme. And so people are like, oh, I guess the function of commute is to get you from A to B. So if you remove the commute, if you don't have to get to A to B, why would you need to stand for 20 minutes in space listening to podcasts? And the answer is because that's incredibly important for your mental health. And if you don't have that in the system. Right. You know, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about but not actually writing due to sort of related issues with time and space management. This thread about video game movies and how like video game movies seem to have this persistent theme whether it's super mario brothers or, or sonic the hedgehog or i'm going to include masters of the universe in there even though it's not really like a video game there's this whole sequence yeah. of of films that have been coming out since the 80s at least that are about how these fictional worlds that we've created are actually just inhabiting an adjacent cosmos. When they're trying to think about how do you take something out of a video game or toy space and into this this like feature-length narrative format, it always involves some kind of interdimensional rupture. It's always about this, this sort of collapse of the fictional and the non-fictional. And in a weird way, that sort of, I don't know if it like recapitulates or reciprocates or, or whatever, but there, it's related to the notion of the hyperstition generally, which is that these films only exist because somebody's stray imagination about an Italian plumber jumping through tubes or whatever is something that has taken over the imaginations of so many people and exists in this concrete material way now has like an object-based agency that it, that is like exerting this pressure on all of us 
And so it's funny, I, back in episode 150 with my graduate advisor, Sean Espiern Hargens, we talked about this sense that when we ask what is real, and you know, there's that sense in which a lot of fictional characters are actually more real than we are if you just measure them, like you're measuring the biomass of ants or something. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, this is something... I mean, I don't have a full theory of this, but whenever you look at the literature on play, the language that jumps into everyone's mind is jumping into an alternate world. Even stuff like well before video games were out. Early 20th century, 19th century, just it's like there are play worlds. You enter into an alternate world where different rules work, where things function according to a different physics or a different normative system. So many people reach for this language. Marina Lagones has this amazing paper where she says that what playfulness is, is holding on to your normative world lightly so you can shift between them easily. This is written way before like virtual reality became a big thing, right? This is just people thinking about soccer. Kids games are already reaching for the language of it's an alternate world that works differently. And then you, trans- you learn to transition and manage this transition between worlds. Well, so this is funny because I do think this actually kind of ramps us directly into your comments on <laughs> gamification and value capture, right? Because I forget who it was that was saying this in like an NPR interview. They were saying, you know, actors tend to realize that they're assuming a role. They're assuming an identity, that they're inhabiting this finite constructed world. But musicians among creative celebrities, musicians don't generally seem to realize this. Like they are in fact occupying, like they're adopting a persona that they assume on stage, but it comes home with them in a way that it often doesn't for actors. And in light of this broader discussion about the gamification of damn near everything due to the quantification of the self, it does seem to be the case that now at any given time, your 21st century person is inhabiting a number of games at any given time that they have mistaken for reality. And that this is a serious problem for reasons that extend beyond simply not having the 20-minute commute between world spaces. Part of the point is that a lot of the older stuff that's been really influential on my theory about games is talking about these like boundary spaces that help you make the mental transition. So it's really important in a board game that you take out the board game, you look at the rules, and now, now you're in the space. And then there's this ritual transition zone out where you stop, I mean, with... My gang, who are like very serious board gamers, we're like, oh, oh, and then someone went lost, and everyone's freaking out. And then you like pause, and then you have put the board game away, and then you sit for a second, you do a little, you know, personal aftercare, whatever you want to call it, and then you're out of it. You, you've had this transition out. And one of the worries is that the tendency towards gamification creates pervasive gamifications that don't have these natural boundary spaces. I don't step back from Twitter, it's like always around me. And it's not the same as, here's my role, I'm going to play it, and now the time is done. We step back from the table and we close our Dungeons and Dragons manuals, and now we know that, that help, that's a transitional ritual that helps us like leave behind the goals we picked up and occupied intensely during the game. And when you don't have that, and when the system actually encourages you to like wear the Fitbit constantly, <laughs> right... Then you don't have the transitional spaces. You don't have like the thing that triggers the stepping back from the narrow value system. Two of my friends, J.F. Martell and Phil Ford, produced this show called Weird Studies. It's art and philosophy show that looks at modernity and interrogates it through a uh, weird ontology lens. Uh, and 
they they talk a lot on that show about banishing, like the banishing ritual. Yeah. So I think that that's been kind of informing my thinking about this. It takes somebody like James P. Carse to write a book like Finite and Infinite Games just so you realize the way that you've confused one for the other. Now it feels like a great time to actually give you an opportunity to provide some exposition on your work, <laughs> generally the big picture of your work. And then if we can, I guess from there, we'll we'll tunnel down into value right. capture. And, and I think that there's some... Yeah, there's there's a lot of places I want to take it. I hope we have time for it. Sure. Uh, so, I uh, my name is T. Nguyen. I'm Associate Professor of Philosophy at University of Utah. Uh, I work in two fields that almost no one thinks are related except me. One field is social epistemology, which is a study of how knowledge works in social communities. And the other is the philosophy of art, especially in my case, games as an art form. Um, I think they're related because I think... Social epistemology is partially about this, is much about the study about how concepts communicate and propagate through a community and get processed collectively by a community. And art, the philosophy of art is the study of subtle communication, how we communicate things that aren't easily written down, that aren't easily put in explicit principles, that have to be put in this. There's no other way, people are like, there's no way to express the feeling of Twin Peaks except. <laughs> Twin Peaks, right? That's it's like specific to all that peculiarity, but it's there's something being communicated there. I've been really interested in various thought traps, you might call them. So, like, I've been writing about echo chambers. I've been writing about the seductiveness of simplistic explanations, like conspiracy theories, and the ways in which, when you have this pleasurably simple thing, right, this huge hedonistic incentive to occupy the simple, coherent, finished position instead of exposing yourself to like the pain and nausea of confusion. So that's one side. The other side, I mean, at first these were separate projects for me. Maybe I always knew, or maybe I'm just making this shit up. But I've been working in the philosophy of art on the nature of games. And I got really frustrated reading all the stuff in which people were like, games are art because they tell stories, or they have beautiful graphics, or they have good characters. And it's not that they don't do those things. Those are just all things we know from like movies and novels, and I was really interested in what makes games special, like what makes them unique. Actually, we know from the history of art that when a new form comes out, people first like try to like rest it back into an old format and be like, let's make photography as much like painting as we can, right? Let's make the novel as much like poetry as we can. And then it, over time, they let themselves sink into what that un medium uniquely affords. So basically, my account in games, in this book, Games Agency is Art, is that Games don't just tell stories or create worlds, but more than that, the game designer tells you who to be in the game. The game designer tells you your abilities, but also your motivations. They give you points. So Reiner Nitya, who's my favorite board game designer, has this moment where he says, the most important thing in a game designer's toolbox is the point system, because that tells the characters what to care about in the game. It tells the characters to tell about whether they're there to kill other people or cooperate with them or collect profit. And so my theory is that the game designer designs a form of agency, an agency which is a motivation set with an affordance, with a set of abilities. I mean, you can say that games are the art of agency or the artistic medium of games is agency. What a, what a game designer is doing is creating a world for you to struggle against, but a you to be with a motivational set. All the aesthetic effects of games arise from this creation of telling you what you want, right? Mario isn't a game until you know you're trying to go right. None of the obstacles come into being if you think, I'm just supposed to stand here and observe, right? So um, 
And part of this, the part that's relevant is that one of the pleasures of games for me is that they give you these temporary experiences of total value clarity. In our normal life, there's a billion values. They conflict. They're hard to measure off against each other. Hard, the, the philosophical term is commensurate. It's really hard to commensurate the value of research with the value of family, with the value of like the pleasures of exercise, whatever. Like, it's hard to measure them against each other. And also for individual values, it's hard to figure out how well you've done by a particular value. You were talking about your kids. I've got kids, young kids. And, you know, I often find myself in the position of being there and watching my four-and-a-half-year-old screaming things about how the black hole gods are going to get him while he's, like, jumping around, taking his diaper off and throwing it around and, like, telling me a story. And I'm like, am I fostering a creative, happy person or am I creating an undisciplined monster? How do I know what good parenting is here? But in games, games tell you exactly what the scale of value is. They tell you exactly how to accomplish it. You can assume that everyone else is using the same scale of value, and you know exactly how to measure it because there are explicit mechanical rules, which is incredibly pleasurable in temporary moments, right? But my worry is, and the general worry I have about gamification is, to get that pleasure in the real world, gamified education, gamified work, gamified communication, which is, I think, what Twitter is, you have to offer people a hyper-simplified, mechanically measurable hyper-explicit value system, and they get the pleasures, game-like pleasures of value clarity in exchange for abandoning the subtlety, plurality, and self-determination of particular values. The, the, the motto that comes up in this stuff, the one I was writing about gamification, is that when you let yourself be gamified by Twitter or Fitbit, you're outsourcing your values. You're letting Mark Zuckerberg set what you care about which I find threatening. We can talk about the details more. But some of the places this stuff has collided is there's, I mean, there's this really interesting way in which like conspiracy theories thrive on social media. And one very simple way to sum it up is that conspiracy theories offer you hyper-simplified explanations of the world. And I mean, bad conspiracy theories. We, we, we can also, some conspiracy theories are true. Just let's... let's we, we can talk about that later. But problem, epidemically problematic conspiracy theories typically are appealing because they offer hyper-simplistic explanations of the world and hyper-simplistic moral systems. And then you, they're functioning well in a technological system that works because it offers a hyper-simplified, simply quantified value system for you to plug into. And that resonance between those things is currently what I'm beating my head against a wall to understand. Is that, is that yeah, that's great. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's the whole thing, really. One of the things I like about your writing is, in, in particular, the, on the piece of the seduction of clarity, that you make a sympathetic case for people who are struggling with this stuff. We're talking about sort of like very fundamental human biases here. And first of all, of a paper I read last year by uh, Zach Wushkowitz and Simon DeDeo that were breaking down different explanatory values and how they were using Bayesian statistics and doing this formal analysis where they're showing how people tend to talk about a preference for simple explanations, but like what actually constitutes a simple explanation? That there is an explanation that manages to account for the most possible phenomena, it's, you know, it's consilient. But then there's other explanations that are 
parsimonious. It's like you're writing the rule with like the shortest possible equation. And these two things are in, are in tension with each other. And so, you know, they, in this paper, they actually make the case that, that the exact same heuristic for a satisfactory explanation that a lot of conspiracy theorists in, are indulging, uh, is the kind of thinking that leads to grand unifying theories in physics and other right. sciences that it's like they're actually looking for this this consilience between all of these seemingly disconnected phenomena and so really their case was that these are not these people are not thinking wrongly in some sense it's that there's a the social dimension they failed not at the level of sort of how they sift through information as individuals so much as they have at the way that they're keeping each other in check as a community by reinforcing kind of different explanatory values. We get into kind of like a Mobius strip, I guess, with that, because where do you actually develop your explanatory values, right? And if you, if they're being handed to you wholesale by this system in which, in which you find yourself carrot and sticked into like particular ways of thinking. So that's part of it. And then the other part of it is Robert Keegan, Harvard developmental psychologist, and his, his book, In Over Our Heads, The Mental Demands of Modern Life, where, and I don't know where you stand on adult developmental theory. I know it's, it's uh, contested by a lot of people, but he makes this case that seems convergent with or supported by the work of a lot of other Western developmental psychologists that adulthood in the modern world is kind of defined by your ability to author your own value system, that you emerge out of this pass-fail score on, am I a good Christian? Am I a good dad? Until you have actually, through the, you know, the affordances of the, the modern world, been brought into direct encounters with other cultures and their differing value systems, then you don't even realize necessarily that it's possible to author your own values. And so, you know, he was he was kind of making the case that the real challenge of living in the modern world is navigating these differing spaces, like knowing when it is time to put on your good employee hat versus when it is time to put on your good husband hat. And of course, this is only aggravated in the world that you just described in which these spaces are physically contiguous. They're like overlapping. I've spent years and years wondering about how augmented reality might sort of address this by allowing you to show different personae at the same time to different people standing in the same room, you know, so that you, you can broadcast that you're a freak over to, to one person and that you're like a responsible, <laughs> upstanding citizen to someone else. Until you click the wrong button and you go horny on name exactly. in the worst possible yeah, way. So like, of course, you know, there's <laughs> you know, hilarious antics ensue. I don't know. That was just like a lot to just stack on you. Right. That was... It was like two, you just opened two separate doors to two yeah, separate universes. Yeah, and let's walk through them both at the same time. But <laughs> Same time, no. But, but yeah, I mean, I have a lot of, as you do, and I really, this is one of the reasons I really appreciate your work, is that I have a lot of sympathy for the, the what some people might call the challenges in sense-making that people are having to live with right now. Let me make things even worse. If you look at alt-right conspiracy theorists and such, 
what you often find is promulgating a slightly simplified version of a recognizable ethic of intellectual autonomy that was the ideal of the scientific revolution, the great enlightenment, and should, you would think, be the ideal of like a philosopher, right? I mean, here's the weird position of a social epistemologist like me in the current era. You know, the philosophers are supposed to be the people saying, like, be intellectually autonomous, think for yourself, don't just trust blindly. But in fact, this is now the world where it's the climate change denialists and the anti-vaxxers who are like, think for yourself, don't be a sheep, why are you trusting scientists? You... And it's people like me who are supposed to be philosophers and espousing the values of critical thinking, also being like, yeah, but also you have to trust experts who you cannot understand. A lot of the work I've been doing in social epistemology was really transformed by a vision in a recent book, a philosophical book called The Great Endarkenment, which is supposed to be the opposite of The Great Enlightenment, by Elijah Milgram. And his view is basically that the modern era is driven by the primary fact of the modern era is that knowledge is too large for any human brain that all science involves long, hyper-specialized chains, where scientific results are such that there's no individual or even field that can understand the whole result. It's like long, huge, massive chains of institutionally driven trust, which is like, you know, the opposite of the ideal of intellectual autonomy. Cutely, he ends up saying that the ideal of intellectual autonomy in the great enlightenment ended up creating the sciences, which destroyed the possibility of intellectual autonomy. But the thing that I think both of us share here is this sense that what's going... So I'm not quite going to go as far as saying that there's no individual responsibility, but there's a view that's like, look, those people who are anti-vaxxers or climate change denialists, they're just dumb and they don't think. But if you actually look at what's going on, what's going on is a very careful process of rationalization, uh, of, of thinking that may proceed from premises that you don't accept right, and new sources you don't accept, but a process of looking for which sources you accept, rejecting sources based on reasons, looking for counter-explanations, trying to carefully manage your trust settings. They just put their trust settings in very different places than we do. In many cases, I think people, a lot of science analysts trust themselves where a lot of, I mean, science trusters put their trust in fields that they can't follow, right? So... One of the things that's really interesting to me is how much of what I think of as deeply problematic intellectual tendencies in the world aren't like people being like stupid or dumb. It's like people following totally reasonable pathways where the world has just fucked up something in the background. So this is the, the Seductions of Clarity paper you're talking about. For me, the whole suggestion of this paper is that the world is often tricking us into stopping to investigate things. But that's not... It's not dumb to stop investigating things, right? <laughs> We're limited human beings in a vastly overwhelming world. We have to figure out what not to investigate, and we can't figure it out by investigating everything all the way down. That's the same problem again. So we have to do this thing where we're constantly making a rough guess about what's worth thinking about and what's worth not. Right? We have to have heuristics for stopping to think. Any reasonable person has to, right? That's a part of rationality, making estimates about what's reasonable to think. So the suggestion of the sections of clarity is that if that's true, then hostile forces would try to take advantage of this vulnerability by simulating whatever it is that triggered your stop thinking mechanism. And my suggestion is the feeling of clarity is a stop thinking mechanism. And if people ape that, and like the experience of being convinced by conspiracy theory really is like everything is clear, right? Now everything makes sense. Sometimes I entertain the view that's like, look, people in these nutty conspiracy theories, QAnon, 
everything is rational. They've just been misled. But other times, I'm not quite sure. And I think the answer is more something like the right view is look for the simplest explanation that explains all the evidence. And the problematic state is sometimes being so excited that you have a powerful explanation that you discard some of the evidence because you're so excited that you can explain so much, 80% of the evidence with your powerful view uh, and being swept away by that. I don't know what to think. I've heard that. I was just listening to a conversation that my friend Stuart Davis was having with Diane Walsh Pashulka, the author of American Cosmic. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work. She's fascinating. She is a religious scholar, an anthropologist, who went down the rabbit hole of the UFO phenomenon in, and has done some of the best work since Jacques Vallée, I guess, on exploring the philosophical challenges of this phenomenon. And, you know, and she was saying in this conversation that, oh God, who was she talking about? It was a college professor whose students were throwing out anomalous evidence. You reference Alison Gopnik talking about the aha moment as a kind of intellectual orgasm. It feels so good to know that most scientists still do this. I mean, this is very much like the, the Thomas Kuhn thing about eventually it just the cognitive dissonance of disregarding the anomaly becomes overwhelming. But at the same time, there's all these like social yeah. or like political motivations, reinforcements right. that make it so that science progresses one debt funeral at a time, because the more the, the, like, the, the more years you've spent invested in a particular knowledge paradigm like the the harder it's going to be to to you really have to and i think in some sense commit yourself like an ascetic to loving being wrong to make that the thing that gets you off so i often find this analogy useful for a long time human beings have evolved such that they can make use of the following nutritional heuristic eat as much sugar and fat as you can Right? For most of the environment of evolutionary adaptionists, that would be great. And then the world changes in many ways to consciously make use of that heuristic to make money, and we're fucked, right? But we have to update the heuristic. And the heuristic, I think, that we update to, that we should update to, that I mean, I feel like I spent a lot of my life struggling to learn is oh, this tastes so yummy and delicious. Oh, oh wait a minute, I need to pause. There's so much pleasure in this thing that I need to worry that it's simply been optimized to meet the pleasure heuristic. It's hard to love just being wrong. That hurts. But one thing you can evolve, I think, I hope, is the suspicion that something is just a little too intellectually satisfying and just a little too instantly clarifying. And to develop a sense that actual intellectual progress, though it can have pleasurable epiphanies, will hurt more along the way. <laughs> And if something is just a little too easy, it's not that it's definitely wrong, but like immediately be suspicious, immediately be suspicious that this is just a little too satisfying. That's the kind of a attempt to change your sensibility that I think we might need to like slowly evolve to be resistant against the fact that there are obviously forces that are out looking to take advantage of any intellectual heuristics we have. And we can't seal ourselves and make ourselves perfect because we have to reason heuristically because there's too much information in the world. Right, that's the basic fact. I'm really glad that you went here because I, I bring up the sugar example a lot. In thinking about how valid are our metrics really, I think a lot about the question of our 
credential issuing institutions. And I'm, I'm going to kind of like, right. you already you already went there, but I, I definitely want to go back to the tensions as pertain to the issue of trust that you talk about in this paper, Transparency is Surveillance. I kind of want to climax this conversation there, but we're getting there. And so this question about the multiple timescales at which something changes, like if you're familiar with a Stuart Brand's concept of pace layers, that he's popularized through the Long Now Foundation. It's like this notion, it's this, it's this diagram of like fashion is this like really fast squiggly line on the very outer membrane of the planet. And then as you go deeper into it, you get like regulatory institutions. And then even deeper, you get geology is like the base layer of this thing is the slowest yeah. thing. But we live in the Anthropocene, right, which is a time that is characterized by the leverage that the small and fast human and our technology has against these immensely slow processes that we have shuffled the pace layers in a way and continue to do so in a, kind of like a more and more insane and reckless way. For me, this gets into questions, like you said, about like Zuckerberg. I had a conversation earlier this year about space billionaires and the degree to which individuals should have the agency to determine history in, in that kind of way. Um, you know, so there are like real grounded uh, concerns regarding the actual like structure of our governance and so on. But part of that is this question about at what pace is my knowledge is, is the knowledge required of me updating and can i actually right. learn it like as you mentioned earlier you know you like this idea about modernity and it being you know, like more than any one person can tackle i remember sfi president david cracker saying his definition of modernity was that culture is learning faster than the individual and so you know we're like constantly stuck behind anyway this gets into questions surrounding how you actually issue someone a degree in something like, yes, we have to trust people. And I, I want to like click and expand that a lot in, for the remainder of our conversation. But it's sitting on top of this even sort of more <clears throat> vexing problem, I think, which is that we don't even seem to know right now when, as you were kind of saying a moment ago with like equal and opposite reality tunnels, that the anti-vaxxers have a completely separate set of experts than the vaxxers. Yeah. And how do we even begin to compare those if we could agree on heuristics in the first place? Okay. Let me give you a little bit of my own intellectual yeah. biography because this might be fun. Long ago in my dissertation, I was obsessed with a problem that very few philosophers think about. And at the time, everyone was like, why are you interested in this problem? It's a really boring corner of philosophy. The problem is the puzzle of how a non-expert identifies the right expert. So I've been working on this for like 15 years, and I feel like the world has suddenly changed, so people are like, oh yeah, we see why you're interested in this problem. Right? Ahead of the curve! Um, so the basic problem, which was from fucking Socrates, if a non-expert doesn't understand a domain, and they have to find an expert to trust, what is their basis for identifying a real expert? And in particular, What's their basis for identifying an expert from a faker poser who's pretending to be an expert and making all the right noises, right? So I think this problem is incredibly complicated. And the basic thing that falls out of this view of the world as hyper-specialized is that at a base level, we can't do it, right? I've got a PhD in philosophy. Ask me to actually figure out what the good climate science is from the junk climate science. At some point, I'm looking at two stats papers, one of which might be from a real statistician and one of which might be from a cooked up fake, how the fuck am I supposed to know, right? So what I actually do 
is I'm like, well, this statistician is at Princeton, and that paper was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, right? So I'm using status markers. Now, I think here's the funny thing. If you take a critical thinking class, standard introduction critical thinking class, they will literally define arguments for authority as a logical fallacy, right? And what we're saying, no, no, this, this is exactly the interesting point, right? I think a lot of the misunderstandings people have about what the fuck is going on right now is based on, even though all evidence comes to the contrary, still clinging to this fantasy that an individual can understand their beliefs for themselves, where obviously that's not right. What we actually do is we have to trust people. Somehow we have to figure out who the right people to trust are, even though we don't know enough to vet their fields. And also our trust, okay, this is the new hot term I'm thinking of. Tell me what you think about it. Our trust is fractally iterated. Mm -hmm. When I trust my doctor, I'm now trusting every article my doctor's read, which includes articles written by researchers by biology, who are in turn trusting said, I don't know who I'm, quickly, if I trust one expert in doing so, I'm trusting like a million other experts. And it's not just that I can't vet each one for myself. I don't even have the time to track where my trust goes, right? Like every pill I take. Every time I eat a piece of food that's been passed through some like regulatory agency, right? My trust is over like people I don't know. So we have to manage this somehow. It's clear to us that, okay, climate change denialists have put their trust in the wrong place. And then the answer is, but where did that mistake happen, right? One version of this is it's just pure luck. I don't know if I believe this, but you could think, look, I grew up trusting people to put my trust in the right place. Other people grew up trusting people that put trust in the wrong place. They're just fucked. I'm lucky. That's all there is to say about it. Um, you, you might there, there was a line that was cut from a pop piece of mine about echo chambers. The line is, who needs evil demons and brains and vats when we have Fox News, right? Growing up in Fox News world might be intellectually equivalent to growing up as a brain and a vat for all the philosophers out there, right? You have a basic procedure where you trust what's around you, and if all that's unreliable, you're just fucked. Um, I, I'm not sure that it's, it's as cut and dry as that, but I do think that identifying where the mistake starts is incredibly difficult, given that I don't have the intellectual basis for telling you, A, not only can I not tell you why this climate change scientist is better than that one on an individual basis, I can't even tell you why this department or this field is better than that one. Doing that would require stats knowledge that I don't have, right? So we're doing something incredibly complicated. And it's something about the large-scale vetting of whole institutional structures. The best I can tell you is I trust climate change scientists because they're part of the same network of trust that includes people to make planes. And those planes don't fucking fall down. So I know that much, Right. But even tracing that through for myself is not... I mean, I'm trusting other people that they're part of the same network. I can't figure that out for myself, right? I spend all my time reading philosophy. I don't have time to unwrangle the institutional arrangements of scientific review processes. Yeah, it's... Right? You know, I, another thing that I wanted to latch on to that hairball of stuff a moment ago was this conversation I had with Rajiv Sethi for Complexity Podcast a couple of years ago when he had co-authored this book with Brendan Flaherty on stereotyping and police violence and of racial disparities in, in criminal justice. And he made this point about the way that we cluster experiences like that you spoke to about how eventually you do have to make a decision. Like you can't sit there 
it, you know, it, we don't we don't live in a world in which we have the time to check every chair before we sit in it. We've we've clumped this right. categorically. We say, okay, the chair is in this right. room, therefore I trust it will hold my weight. One of the things that I brought up with him was how the internet effectively makes every interaction. You know, if if you think I remember Sensate was talking about this about how like a few a few centuries ago you would meet the number of people in your entire life that you encounter in an, in a single day now. And so you don't have, like we're under this enormous pressure to evaluate people in less time than we actually have to make a, a, a legitimate evaluation of them. And so we're like, the, the question that I have is like, uh, and one of the questions is, that you basically just said is like, there's no easy answer to is, has the internet effectively sold us exactly the opposite of what it advertised as far as like a more egalitarian world because we're stuck in this situation now where we're right. we're required to be interoperable with people that we're essentially right. meeting in a dark alley and and more likely to shoot than we would if we had time to break bread with them <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I mean that that's a great insight. A colleague of mine, Aaron Beagley, who's a philosopher who works in feminist philosophy and is really involved with cognitive science, has this great project where she says, like, people say, people have this claim that racism is wrong and sexism is, is wrong because it's based on stereotypes. But stereotyping is how we work cognitively. You can't process the world unless you have an internal script like, this is what cars are. This is how they behave, right? You need to clump. And it's, I'm teaching a 200-person lecture. I cannot keep track of every individual student. I have to, like, clump them into groups the interested students, the bored students. And then I have to like try to somehow make guesses about how they'll react given this kind of clumping procedure. And I think you're exactly right that the more people we meet, the more we have to make fast decisions based on inadequate evidence, which involves making inferences. And making inferences are basically creating general categories and having to assume that there's some similarity. This is background thought. I mean, you touch on this, and I don't have a good explanation for this, but the background thought is, you know, I was around when we had this dream that the internet would fix everything. <laughs> it would make knowledge perfect. It would make democracy perfect. Flash forward two decades later to the Trump election, right? <laughs> and I think a few things that we didn't think about back in the dream days are really about the basic problem of information overload, Right. So Zainab Tufekci, one of my, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you, like one of my favorite scholars, has this incredible piece in Wired that it's called the Democracy Poisoning Age of Free Speech or something like this. And her view is our idea of censorship is outdated now. We used to think that what's bad about censorship is that you might shut off the couple of news channels, but you can't do that anymore, right? Twitter is too hard to shut down. There are too many sources of information. What we have instead is the problem of burying. There's a few spotlights in the world. And if your words are in public, uncensored, on the thousandth page of Google search rankings, you're fucked. No one's ever going to hear you, right? And the interesting thing is, and this is something I think no one predicted, the access points are so constricted, right? So here are a few of them. Google search algorithms, Amazon's search ranking algorithms, right? The incredible fights over your place on the Amazon search algorithm are about, look, there's this one little gateway for everyone's attention, right? And if you don't rise to the top, you are effectively censored through overload. I saw some research that said 
in the era of social media, we are collectively reading a smaller number of articles. Instead of like everyone reading like a different things and then talking, everyone on the left is reading like the same five think pieces each week, right? Similarly, Spotify, you should be able to listen to anything, but basically it turns out most people just listen to whatever's on the early recommender pages, right? So something weird is happening that I don't think we fully have come to grips with. And I think you're exactly right that something about the scale and the size and the overload of the internet has, has like created a new information condition that we haven't figured out how to cope with yet. It's interesting because I just sat through this lecture on social ranking, which like speaks directly to yeah. this. I don't recall who did this research, but they showed that simply by reversing the first and second Google search result, you could swing an election by like up to 25%. And they experimented on this with, um, I think it was like mayoral elections. It was some small, some small thing. Would I you was, send I'll, me this I'll have research? to find it. It was done around the time of the 2016 elections. And yeah. they were basically saying that there is no way to actually hold anyone accountable for this. Because if you said, Google, your search results clearly skewed the election, then they can just throw some random programmer under the bus ultimately the people that are actually responsible for deploying this algorithm are institutionally invulnerable let me just say one thing people think that the problem is a problem in the algorithm where you might think the problem is a monolithicness it doesn't matter what algorithm google uses the mere fact that google has such singular prominence and that everyone channels their attention not through a pluralistic set of methods but through a singular one it's the mere fact of Google's centrality, not anything. I mean, of course the algorithm would be fucked up, but even if the algorithm was somehow perfect by whatever standard that would be, you would still get this dominance. Right, and, and so this is related to what you were saying a moment ago about like the relative number of winners being fewer under these conditions. It's kind of like a, a, a new fold in the same old story about industrial manufacture creating these one-size-fits-all fighter pilot seats and so on. So all the fighter pilots had to be the same right. height that even though we've figured out now how to make bespoke things for people, you know, design your own Nikes yep. that's on the consumer end. That may be the case. There's this deeper sense in the, the architecture of the information and the way that it's delivered that is still very much like the Spotify algorithm learns your listening habits but it's the spotify algorithm it's not your yep. spotify algorithm it's not your search results this is the, i mean this is central in this this value capture project i'm working on right i mean i've come to think that one of the most important forces in the modern world is standardization what standardization is and what it's required for information to be standardized, to be aggregated across many information collection systems is amazing. By the way, to listeners, if you're interested in this, I can really recommend Bowker and Starr's book, Sorting Things Out, which is A Social History of Standards, Theodore Porter's book, Trust in Numbers, which is A History of the Rise of Quantification, all of Wendy Esplin's books, but as it works, but especially her book with Michael Souter, Engines of Anxiety, which is about what the ranking system does to the law schools. And then the center of it for me, which I'm sure we're going to talk about more, is James Scott book, Seeing Like a State, which is the basic thesis of th Seeing Like a State is that large-scale states, large-scale institutions can only see and process the features of the world that can be entered into large-scale bureaucratic information processing, basically quantify data. And so anything that can't be readily quantified, they can't see. And Scott's general idea is, so large-scale states 
have a reason to change the world to be more readily legible in state-level terms. P.S. For him, state includes both capitalisms and centralized bureaucracies of communism. So this is like, this is supposed to attack capitalism and centralized socialism and communism with like one fell swoop, where the problem is right. information Right, I mean, it gets, it gets to this sort of nightmarish, eldritch reality that has been disclosed to me since I started working at SFI, which is that these hierarchical systems exist in order to minimize the friction or the violence that's happening. You think about policing as a mechanism. Jessica Flack and Franz Deval and, and, and David Krakauer and others have worked on this issue of primate dominance hierarchies and how Basically, the fights that happen are in order to de-escalate otherwise more serious conflicts. Again, it gets to this issue where the entire society is aggregating information at a time scale that is a much slower time scale than whatever is actually going on at the level of individuals. And so, yeah, so, I mean, these are all great references. I'll include these in, in the show notes. But, I mean, they all kind of paint this this portrait about an inherent tension between humans and our institutions that I can't think of a way yeah. to resolve. <laughs> Here's the big worry. So my worry in value capture is that when you get your values from institutional sources, when you internalize institutionally derived values like metrics, measures, GPA, Twitter, Fitbit, what you're doing is you're filtering your values through demands for large-scale information aggregation. And one of the core demands for large-scale information aggregation is standardization of data inputs. The way that Theodore Porter puts it is that qualitative information is incredibly rich and nuanced and context-sensitive, but it doesn't travel well between contexts, and it can't aggregate. So to aggregate, you need to create a single kernel of information that's invariant and then have everyone input data in the same way, and then you can aggregate. And of course, the example I always use is GPA, right? I can give really rich qualitative evaluations of my students and all the missions they're good at, but what I have to return that will be entered into the record is a simple comparative ranking to other students on one dimension, which... I have to squash all that complexity. Of course, my complex evaluations will be meaningless to a dean whose background is in, I don't know, neurobiology, just because our contexts are so different. So the problem for me of value capture is if you start being motivated by something like GPA as your value system, then you don't have the capacity to tailor that value to yourself. You're accepting as a value which must obey the demands of large-scale institutional standardization. Which is not to say that institutional standardization is bad. I think it's required for institutions. And also we need institutions for collective endeavors. I've been thinking there's a basic tension between our nature as participants and collectives and our nature as weird individuals with their own emotions. And we need both. And they pressure each other. And that pressure is kind of irresolvable. And we just have to live in the fucked up pressure. And try not to sacrifice one of those Which, parts. Which, again, is really, really hard when you have these increasing returns to scale. All of the stuff about the first mover advantages, or to harken back to the social ranking talk that I just saw, basically it explains why, for instance, in 2017, everybody thought Ethereum was going to overtake Bitcoin in market capitalization, and it just couldn't. Because you've already established that this thing lives on the top of the charts. And, and so, you know, everything else that's built around it is sort of dependent on this thing. And like, it's the same basic idea with paradigm shifts. At any rate, I would really love to connect you with the folks at Idea Market. I just became a grantee for them. And they're a blockchain-based social epistemology experiment 
where they're trying to basically use like a prediction market approach to deinstitutionalize reputation. And on one level, right. very cool. But on another level, it's not blinded in a way that it seems like it should be in order to prevent this just from being overtaken as, as like a, a tyranny of the majority type outcome. Yeah, a lot, of the, a lot of the systems that I see are just like, hey, let's substitute one institution's ranking system for another institution's ranking system. So one of the things I think, this is harkening back to an earlier part of our conversation, but one of the things about games value systems is that games, in the normal sense, in the f traditional sense, aren't pervasive. You get to choose, right? Even though a game has a particular written-in-stone value system and a particular written-in-stone way to approach it, in our life with actual games, you can transition between games, abandon them, and find the one that fits you. So in a sense, a particular game isn't tailorable, but the ecosystem of games is one you can explore, right? When I was trying to discover what kind of exercise would fit me, I tried, like, 50 until I found rock climbing and like that fit. But pervasive gamifications are often not like this, right? Twitter is not like this. Grades aren't like this. There is a system attached to an institution. And if you want to play in that space, you're stuck. And that the tailoring of that value, that value system is not one you can tailor or, or adopt to yourself or that one, one you can switch around and look for the one that fits you. And so, I mean, Maybe there's one answer that's like, look, you just need a ton of metrics to work here. But one thing that the empirical literature shows that's super interesting is large-scale social systems tend to glom onto one metric. It's often the first metric. It's often the easiest to use. So Sally Engel-Mary charts this really well in this book of hers called The Seductions of Quantification. She's an anthropologist who worked on the development of various UN human rights indices, and then wrote this book about how fucked up the process of making human rights indices is. And one of the things she says is like, yeah, we have these incredibly multidimensional measures of human rights, and then we generate this ranking. And we're like, okay, the ranking is just this very rough proxy. Don't pay too much attention to it. Here are all the incredibly rich, important things to look at. And then everyone ignores that stuff and just pays attention to the ranking. And I think, again, the explanation is if you want the experience of value clarity, you're not going to get it from the list of 500 possible measures. You're going to get it if you focus in on one ranking. That's what's going to make things feel like a nice game. It occurs to me listening to you talk about this, that even though like in, in your writing on the seduction of clarity, you know, you, you talk about hostile or, 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 and, and sort of like the subdomain of hostile epistemology, combat epistemology, which I love thinking about this in those terms. I think we're inclined to think about a hostile environment or a hostile actor as occupying the same taxonomic status as we are, you know, that it's like someone out there doing it. But everything that you've just said in the last, say, 15 minutes or so suggests that we can all be exploited and duped by the distributed agency of these institutional hyper objects. And so like, it's not even a hostile environment as you, you make the point in this, you know, it could just be like a crumbling ruins or the surface of Mars, but there's a sense in which, you know, you really have to stretch it to make the equivalence that a hostile Martian atmosphere is the same level of agency as something like capitalism. I want to make sure that we get into, because we've kind of bounced off the surface of this other piece a few times now. And because this question about 
trust and all the stuff that we're saying about the internet is so related to this historical conversation about the virtues of transparency. And I myself was once a kind of transparency evangelist, as one would be if one had been searched unconstitutionally and then brought up on charges right. by a corrupt criminal system. You know, I was like, where's the dashboard camera footage, guys? But right. you make a really interesting case in, in this, this piece that one of the sort of dimensions of irresoluble tension between seemingly good things is in the issue of transparency and the harms that it incurs or potential risks or challenges that transparency brings. So it's a little late to just throw a complete whole extra scoop on this Sunday, but let's go there anyway. Let's do it. Yeah, okay. yeah, we can do it. So I got into the transparency stuff. It was really interesting. So I've been working about stuff about trust, obviously. But I got into this reading on the gamification research track, reading about the history of quantifications. And I kept seeing the same observation, again, by empiricists, over and over again. They would look, and they would be like very progressive people, as left or more left than me. And they'd be saying things like, yeah, but we keep seeing these things where these transparency measures that get put into place for very good progressive reasons, like 10 years later, are just fucking people. And we want institutions to be more diverse. And we have all these complex measures of diversity. And then we're like, oh, but look, here's a simple measure you can start with. What percentage of women? What percentage of people of color? And then suddenly 10 or 20 years down the line, what you get is diversity is increasing your percentage of women and people of color, period. And so I got really interested in this relationship where you keep seeing metrics put into place for reasons of transparency. And I was trying to understand that. I found this incredibly interesting passage from the philosopher Onara O'Neill, who works on trust and bioethics, where she says that people think that trust and transparency go together, but transparency, they don't because transparency asks experts to explain themselves to non-experts, which means since non-experts won't understand their actual reasons, it means experts will have to make up reasons. And I think it's even worse because I think in some cases, experts are value captured by transparent metrics. And so it's not just that they're making up reasons, it's that they're reasoning with non-expert comprehensible reasons and goals. And if you think that expert reasoning is special and hard to explain, then the demand that experts act only on reasons they can make publicly available will undermine expertise. In the current culture about the nature of transparency, this lands like a fucking lead brick because, I mean, I, I also had a similar experience to you. I believed really heavily in transparency, and then you get involved in bureaucratic institutions, and you discover that what transparency looks like is the Utah State Legislature saying, hey, philosophy department, justify your existence or we're going to cut you, and the transparent measure is how, how, how many students graduate and how much money they make, because those are the objective measures, and we want to say things like what this looks like on the ground is, but what about the value of wisdom, the value of curiosity, and the value of reflections, and they're like, well, there's no objective measure for that, so we're going to, that's institutionally acceptable, so we're going to use graduation rate and salary. And so the suggestion in particular, it's interesting to me, is that part of expertise is understanding the complexity of value. And a lot of institutional metrics are specifically built to register a value that's comprehensible to non-experts. So... Uh, I mean, I've got a lot of examples of this, but you, you can see all this stuff. Like the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts, gets put under congressional oversight. And, the, and Congress people say, keep saying like, oh, the way you show that you're not corrupt is 
and not just being nepotistic is that you show that what you're funding has good box office returns. And you're like, that's not what good art is. But that's but what good art is, what's worth funding, is an expert matter for people that spend a lot of time with the art. The, say the sensitivity that an arts grantor might have to say what makes a you know new comic artist exciting is not going to survive the demand for institutional justification to exterior sources that don't have that kind of training. So... I should issue a big caveat. My claim here isn't that like transparency is bad or that we should get rid of it. Transparency certainly gets rid of corruption and certainly gets rid of bias. That's unquestioned. My worry is the current view that transparency is all good and we should have as much as possible. I think the right view is, and this is the title of the paper, is that transparency is a form of surveillance. It's surveillance that puts experts under surveillance by non-experts which is good for catching corruption and bias, but has a heavy price of letting experts only act on reasons that are comprehensible to non-experts. I mean, one way that I put it is that the realm of the inchoate and the intuitive is where corruption and bias live, but it's also where sensitivity and expertise and subtlety live. And transparency gets rid of it all. So in general, I mean, the theory about surveillance is it's good for getting rid of corruption and bias, but it's a heavy price. So you should only put it in place when you have really fucking good reason to. And it's how much surveillance you have should scale with how good the reasons are. And I worry that right now, instead, people are like, look, let's just make everything transparent all the time. And transparency looks good when you're on the outside, but it often feels terrible when you're on the inside, right? When each action has to be reported and explained to a public that doesn't understand and isn't part of the world, right? So the thing that's really interesting here is almost like in situations in which we institutionally distrust people, we want them accountable to us in terms we can understand, but that's weirdly an intent intention with expertise. And I don't think there's a good solution for it. That's just, it's another way in which we're fucked or we have to choose a painful compromise. And that's, that's what yeah, we got. So a couple thoughts there. One is, I don't know if you'd known Nick Adams and, and Goodly Labs, a project out of Berkeley that's working on a number of different hacks for social epistemology. One in, one in particular I really like called Public Editor, which is crowdsourcing fact-checking in a system where, you know, they right. uh, like I've been talking with them, like, are you going to use volunteers? Are you going to, like, issue micropayments to Mechanical Turk operators or, you know, that this kind of thing? An answer like that does seem to kind of punch this problem down the road a little bit, but in another way, it might actually kind of help ease the pain of what you're talking about by simply distributing the load of expertise a little bit, you know, like decentering it somewhat. The worry is in this case, all the weight will go to the selection system for who does the fact checking. So you want to do fact checking for me for a philosopher? What if the fact checkers are full of people that think that critical race theory is the worst thing in the world. So the original problem is that how do non-experts identify experts? Metrics now push it to how do expert, how do non-experts identify the right expert, right metric to identify experts? <laughs> and now you're like, okay, let's introduce another layer. And now we have the problem of how do non-experts pick the right system to pick the fact checkers who will be put in oversight over experts? You can keep pushing this problem. And there, I mean, there are definitely better and worse ways to implement it. But the core problem is you can distribute that moment. And there are, be- there are definitely better and worse ways to distribute it. But at the core, you still have this non-expert expert gap. And you still have to have some moment in which you 
come to trust somebody that understands something that you don't. So for example, let's say that I want oversight over people that are developing AI. To do that, I need to pick machine learning experts who I believe to be expert but are neutral as the fact checkers. How do I do that? Although I do, I do think that maybe this is this problem is kind of akin to a Zeno's paradox problem when it's like, yeah, there may be no solution for this if we're thinking about things in kind of a, a, a continuum. Um, like we'll never get there. But if we think about it in terms of discrete steps, like we can absolutely close, you know, like we can't perfectly close the gap, but we might be able to like suture it closed enough that for all right. social, re- for, yeah. for all practical purposes, it's going to heal on its own. I, I do think that's close to the right solution. So one of the things I talk about is Philip Kitcher has this, he's a philosopher of science. He has a, he has a version of a solution to this, which is called indirect calibration, which looks like, well, I can learn to trust an airplane engineers and they trust a certain set of scientists and those like, but what that isn't is immediate transparency mm-hmm. to the public. And the thing that I'm worried about is the thought that, Oh no, just make the data available to the public in general. If everyone gets to see it, then we'll solve the problem. I think the right solution is extended chains of trust, which is, I think what you're describing, but that's not the kind of immediate public transparency that I'm worried about. Right. What, I, what I'm worried about is the imposition by the public of a publicly comprehensible standard that immediately rules right, with no steps in between. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the endarkenment and, and the sort of paradox right. inherent in a kind of like a myopic approach to reason and comprehensibility, because it precisely, as you said a little bit ago, the actual consequences of this are an actual shrinkage of the amount of space of all human knowledge that we can actually observe. Like the horizons have actually gotten much, much closer than they seemed maybe a hundred or 200 years ago. I wanted to, I want to make sure that we touch on, you you talked about quote epistemic intrusion and the problem of experts and non-experts, but this sort of falls into a more general problem that you identify as the intimate reasons argument, which is not, it's not just about, uh, which I like for intimate reasons. Um, It's, it's not just uh, a question of someone being on an objectively higher peak knowledge wise. It's also about like inside jokes and like specific cultural understanding. And this gets back to the stuff that we were talking about in terms of, like you said, the way that people might be using the same heuristics, but operating from different conditioning, different knowledge bases, you know, different social cultural contexts. And I was talking about this with Tyson Yoon Caporta on the show about the problem inherent in opening in this sort of like the globalization, the way that it has exposed every culturally unique reality to this, you know, like it it seems like cancel culture has exploded precisely because of this problem, which is that we don't have time enough in the world again to like harp on this. We don't have time enough in the world to actually understand someone else's culturally specific view on a particular thing. And yet, for whatever silly reason, people can now find levers on and weigh in on matters of cultural, like specific local governance can become something that's unfolding on a global stage. And so suddenly you can get all of these people who are 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not somebody who's like a, a total relativist as far as this goes, you know, right. but I but at the same time, like, I think it's a much more complicated issue than like, is genital mutilation acceptable? You know, I mean, it's it's like a pervasive thing. The intimate reasons argument, which is also from the Transparency and Surveillance paper, is the basic idea is something like, look, their communities and their kinds of reasons that are best understood if you've been in a particular community for a really long time. In my part of philosophy, there are two totally different places where you see these reasons come up. One is aesthetic and art, right? Like, you're not going to see the importance of this kind of jazz or the importance of this kind of maneuver in a new comic unless you are buried in the jazz community, the rap community. Like, you spent time, you spent time with people, you've had those experiences, you've had the subtle experiences. The other version is from a part of feminist and critical race philosophy called standpoint epistemology. And this is the view that, look, there are understandings of the world that you better have directly if you've gone through a particular experience. And the idea is like the experience of being oppressed in a particular way gives you better access to certain kinds of understanding. So my version of this is to suggest that there are reasons whose full force is only understood if you've really been there in that space, in that community, living that kind of life. And that the demand for transparency often looks like the demand for people to reason in ways that don't demand any particular background at all. What I'm saying is in some ways uncontroversial, but in some ways very controversial. I think in a lot of philosophy and a lot of public life, there's a supposition that all reason is essentially public and universal. That any piece of reasoning can be comprehensible to anybody. And I think a lot of the suggestion is no, right? No. You might be able to trust somebody, but you won't fully get grip a reason unless you've lived that life. This came up from my own observation and watching LGBTQ support groups try to explain why certain things like safe spaces were so important under the demand of transparency and budget requests to a public that hadn't lived that way and having those reasons just fall on ears that wouldn't understand it. So there's this idea that a lot of reasoning depends on intimacy in the community, All right? And the worries that transparency shreds those. Here's a cool thing. Here's a little pop piece of mine that's about to come out. It hasn't come out yet, but I think this is the right place to give it to you. So I was trying to figure out why there are so many incredibly miserable pylons on Twitter. And here's the theory. So to understand the theory... <laughs> This is a total philosopher moment. You have to understand Ted Cohen's early 1980s theory of jokes in his book Jokes, which is one of my favorite philosophy books ever. So Cohen has the following theory about jokes. I'm waiting for the moment where we get this. You'll get this connection in a second. So th Cohen's theory about jokes is that every joke involves the surprise disclosure of a piece of shared background knowledge. Right, something that you believe, know and believe in common has to come out, and it has to be a surprise because the way you ruin a joke is you prepare people ahead of time by telling them what that piece of shared background knowledge is. Right, it has to like emerge. One of my favorite examples from I mean, this is also among other things, this incredible compendium of Jewish humor. But one of the jokes from that is like, the thing about German food is no matter how much you eat, an hour later you're hungry for power. And, right. and that depends on knowing that there's this trope that the thing about Chinese food is an hour later you're hungry for more and about stereotypes, about your, all, all this shit, right? You, there's background knowledge you have to know. But since the joke teller can't give you the background knowledge ahead of time, then every joke is a risk where what you're gambling on is that there's a pre-existing shared intimacy. So his view 
is that jokes depend on, are a risk about, and then when they come off, emphasize intimacy, where intimacy is a shared background set of knowledge. And I think a lot of Twitter works this way, right? Twitter is short, and it works because suddenly there's some shared bit of background that's emerging, right, that you have to share. So Twitter gives you so much reason to make these things that are incomprehensible to people without shared background or context, where it's funny because there's background shared context, and then it gives you the retweet button, which lets you rip something out of context and show it to people that won't get it. And so Twitter is a machine that incentivizes, rewards, and then destroys intimacy. That's the theory. Wow, you're really making me love my social media job here. Even I mean, more than <laughs> I, like it's funny. The longer, the I mean, longer does that seem I, right I spend at this, I feel like the more I, I've become. You know, it's like the problem of connoisseurship, right? Which is like the deeper you go into something, it's just like I thought. The more reasons you have not to like most wine, if you're like a wine connoisseur, and and I feel like you know, I talk to people whose job it is not to be on social media all the time about stuff like this. And they're just like, that's not my experience. Like that's, I don't have that problem. And I'm like, well, I think you should look very carefully at the complaints issued by people who are working inside the nuclear reactor rather than the people whose homes are merely warmed by it. Like this is, <laughs> yes. So yes, totally, totally sympathetic to this argument. And yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it is, it is that, yes. I have nothing smart to add to that. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it is a it's a it's a scary situation. So maybe maybe the 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 place to like land this conversation because we have just spent the last hour and a half mapping this most complex predicament, this this total pickle in which we find ourselves, where the entire game board of this game we pretend like we're not in or has been like intentionally hidden from us as a game is toward kind of ratcheting this stuff even more than it already has and so you know i just i wonder what if any exit conditions you acknowledge here or or i invite you to speculate into a future in which obviously like it's it's kind of maybe akin to well we never really got rid of nukes but we found mutually assured destruction and it, it's not a perfect scenario but no major city has been nuked in quite some time so yeah so like where are you with that like where where do you where do you see possibly points of balance that allow us to navigate this nightmare with a little bit more grace, you know, without just so, so perniciously undermining ourselves. It's funny because like James Scott has a solution. I mean, he has this criticism that says like these systems arise from capitalism and centralized socialism. So the answer is anarchy. I'm not an anarchist. I think we need institutions and collective endeavors. So that doesn't work for me. At the end of my games book, I float a solution, and that solution is something like one of the antidote, one of the antidote forces might be playfulness. That what, what it is to be playful is to practice moving in and out of systems. And one of the suggestions I make in the book is the very practice of playing games aesthetically. That is, trying on a rigid value system for a while, absorbing yourself into it, and then stepping back and asking if that was worth it actually flexes the muscle of saying, like, wait, how do I feel about this? value system. How do I feel about that value system? I also think if you look at the history of like what people think aesthetics is, it keeps saying things like, oh, art is like 
about expressing what isn't easily expressed in like explicit terms, like about groping for the subtle and the quiet. And I tend to think that, I mean, maybe this is the hopeful side of me, but under the rubric of things like play and art and shit like that are resistant forces to hypersimplified dogmatism. Of course, those things can be captured. You can create a simulacrum of play that isn't resistant. That looks like the gamification of work. You can look like, make a simulacrum of art that serves the purposes of hyper-explicit legibility. That's like propaganda, right? But maybe, maybe there's something in those forces. But one, one thing I worry about, I don't know about this, but a lot of the times it seems like I'm making an argument that's like, there's an essential institutional logic that leaves out certain parts of our lives. And people ask, so what's the institutional <laughs> solution? And I'm like, I don't know if there's an institutional solution. There may just be like individual resistance or like small scale. I mean, that's as much as I've got. I don't know. I feel like I am still working on describing the problem well. And well, I just you know, more depressed. since you brought all this up and I'm, I'm now reflecting on, I don't recall if I actually sent you this, this paper or not, but I was, I was, I was asked to write an article last year um, for a, a book collection on algorithmic confinement or imprisonment and the use of improvisation to escape that. And so I'll send you that here in the chat and I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. But basically I saw the problem and the solution kind of look like the same thing to me because to the extent that we cannot perfectly capture the human being, then these gaps, these lacunae in the system are the means by which or the, the terrains in which we still have a humanity that cannot be subjected to market forces, cannot be identified and thus controlled by the state. Like the very things that people seem to want, and it's, it's funny because this ties to your, your transparency piece, like the, very, the very sort of recognition, acknowledgement, visibility that people want is also arguably eventually going to backfire. And so I think that there is something about, for instance, like a mature ecosystem is, you know, one in which all of the free energy has been captured. Like everything, you know, something has evolved to capitalize on exploit every possible opportunity. And eventually that thing undermines itself because it's, you know, it's too complex. And so you get these endogenous extinction events that I think arguably we are seeing now, like that kind of been describing the conditions of one of these, where it's like technological change is happening so fast, we can't actually get ahead of it. And, and when that happens, generalists that under more stable conditions are inefficient. They're not optimized to navigate a mature ecosystem. They haven't settled on a given strategy. Generalists look suddenly like way more prepared for for you know these like these epochs of great instability because they they're not as narrowly specified like their identity is more of a cloud than a point and so yeah somebody who is capable of stepping in and out of various game systems and rule sets and and and, and is not likely to die on the hill of a given evolutionary fitness landscape, trying to optimize for a bygone world. Yes, yep. total agreement with you. Thank you for reminding me 
that, that this is basically my own sort of self-justifying argument for being a complete dilettante and that there's a, a rigorous argument for like, why is play a persistent evolutionary strategy? Why does it exist in the first place? You know, because, because the world changes. So I don't know. You have, you, do you have any closing thoughts? I, I really have, I've, I've just absolutely loved this conversation and I'm glad that you took the time to, to be here with us for it. But uh, what else? I actually have a closing thought. But I'm trying. To, it's it's not even in my words. I just wanted to find something for you. But I was just teaching this stuff in this like game design and theory class. One thought is that I'll give you two closing thoughts, not in my own words. Uh, Bernard Suits, the philosopher who's working on games, I found really is the cornerstone for everything I've done. Has any kind of play, and he says what play is is the redirection of normally instrumental and productive resources to autotelic activities, where autotelic means valuable for its own sake. And there's something really interesting that, like, no, this notion of play involves, like, refusing to join in in some standard notion of productivity and usefulness. And the last thing I want to read is this, what Maria Lagones' description of playfulness. Our activity has no rules. There's certainly intentional activity, and we both understand what we are doing. The playfulness that gives meaning to our activity includes uncertainty, but in this case, the uncertainty is an openness to, to surprise. This is a particular metaphysical attitude that does not expect the world to be neatly packaged, ruly. ruly. Rules may fail to explain what we are doing. We're not self-important. We're not fixed in particular constructions ourselves, which is to say we are open to self-construction. We may not have rules, and when we do have rules, there are no rules that are, that are to us sacred. We are not worried about competence. We are not wedded to a particular way of doing things. While playful, we have not abandoned ourselves to, nor are we stuck to in any particular world. We are there creatively. We are not passive. It's from Marina Lagones, one of the great papers. It's called Playfulness, World Traveling, and Loving Perception. And that's, that's the best beautiful. I got. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much for being on this show. I was really looking forward to this, and I will now be fondly reflecting on the insistency with which I think you and I have managed to articulate the importance of ultimately like that's, a, that's a piece of the joke too, right? Is that like, you're the butt of the joke. If you're the guy slipping on the banana, right? But if you're, but if you're like yeah. watching yourself over your own shoulder, you can laugh about yeah. it. And that's the, that's the ultimate yeah. Buddhist, you know, like when you get it, you will tilt your head back and laugh. So let us hope that we, through the sort of systems of surveillance that we have created, are able to, to break the fifth wall, as, as my friend Rachel Nagelberg says, take a perspective on ourselves and laugh about how seriously we took this, <laughs> these insoluble philosophical problems. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Special shout out this week to my friend Mitch Mignano, who helped me edit this episode. To my friend Evan Skytree Snyder, who provided the music for this episode. And to each and every one of you listening. If you'd like to go deeper, I hope to see you in the Future Fossils Discord server, which you can find linked from my Twitter bio. For extra episodes every month and lots else, hop on over to patreon.com slash Garfield. And I'll see you in an eye blink of geologic time 
with the next episode, which is an amazing conversation on Ecodelia with Richard Doyle, Sophie Strand, and Sam Gandy. Thanks and take care.